Well, good morning, Northbrook. One announcement before we dive in today. Easter is two weekends away. Can you believe it? I know there was snow on the ground yesterday, but spring is coming, I promise. And uh, I'm so excited to celebrate uh, the fact that 2,000 years ago, the reigning power in the world crucified a man trying to stop his message. And here we are, halfway across the world, thousands of years later, and we're going to join with millions of people around the world, different languages, different continents, proclaiming that that message continues today. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. And, you know, I don't know about you, but if you've grown up in church, I think Easter can sometimes lose its, its, the beautiful power. You know, you just, it's like, oh yeah, it's Easter. And yet, when you step back and think about how impossible it would be that millions of people are going to celebrate a man dying and coming back to life, and yet here we are. And that's the power and the beauty of the gospel that for thousands of years it has continued today. And so I hope you'll join us. Uh, but before there could be an empty tomb, there had to be a cross. And so uh, we have two Good Friday services for you this year, again at 1 and 7 p.m. And I hope that you uh, will join us. If you've never been to one of our Good Friday services, uh, I know there are many people that say that our Good Friday service is one of the most powerful services that we do. And um, I want to encourage you to, to join us if you, if you are able. We have child care at those services for birth through age four. And also on Good Friday, the chapel is going to be open from noon to eight for silent reflection and prayer. So if you would like a quiet place to come and just reflect, take some time to pray, uh, the chapel will be available for you on Good Friday, again, 12 to eight. And then moving into Saturday, we have five Easter services for you to choose from. The normal service times, we've also added a set, an extra one on Saturday. The times you can uh, see on the screen, they're also online, also on social media. So lots of places if you forget the times. Uh, but it's going to be a great weekend. And our, our ch- um, children's ministry is going to have a celebration of their own for ages birth through fifth grade at all the service except the 8 a.m. Because if you are a parent and you can get your kids ready for Easter by 8 a.m., you are an overachiever. You're making all the other parents look bad. Also, we have a parent conference next month. We'd like you to speak at it. Uh, no, again, our apologies, but, but no, sir, no, uh, childcare at 8 a.m., but all the other services, full childcare, birth through fifth grade. Lastly, as you leave today, you're going to find, uh, Easter invite cards on the tables. Uh, and, uh, we'd encourage you to grab a couple of these. And here's, here's my challenge. Uh, normally when you come to Easter and Christmas, there are people that you, you usually invite, right? Family members, perhaps a close friend, you just know, usually invite them. But I want to challenge you to spend some time praying over the next week and ask the Holy Spirit, are there a couple people that you wouldn't normally invite to an Easter service that he wants you to invite this year? And just see what names come to mind, what names the the Holy Spirit places on your heart, and then take a risk and just um, either hand them one of these cards or whatever way you want to invite them. Uh, Invite them to Easter and just see what God does. Uh, just a reminder, like our goal for Easter is not that we would pack this place out so we can pat ourselves on the back and go, look at us. Uh, but our goal for Easter is that as we come together to celebrate, that we would invite others to come and celebrate too, and God would work in their lives because we believe that God is a transforming, life-changing God. Amen? 
Amen. So I want to encourage you to think and pray about who you could invite and just allow God to, uh, to speak to you and maybe invite a couple of people you wouldn't normally invite. All right, I'm going to pray before we dive into the message. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your goodness and your love. And now, Father, as we open your word, I pray, I know that your word is active and alive, and I pray that you would speak to us in a clear way today, that you would use my imperfect words to convey a perfect, beautiful truth. And so, Father, we give you this time, and uh, Father, we pray that we would leave here differently than the way we walked in, that your words would, would change us, that we would hear it and we would respond to it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are in week five of our Lent series. If you're joining us for the first time in this series, uh, our, this Lent season, we're exploring uh, stories from the Gospels that take place around a table. So much of life happens around food. And uh, even though it was 2,000 years ago, much of Jesus' ministry happened around tables, uh, eating food with others, or were stories he told uh, about people eating meals together. And again, while it's been 2,000 years, these stories are still so applicable for our lives today. And so today we come to a story found in Luke 14. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or it'll be on the screens. Luke 14, starting in verse 15. But before we get to it, I want to set up the context of this story. What has happened prior to this story? Because Jesus is about to launch into a story. And it's so important to understand the context because that explains why he's launching into this story. Without the context, this story seems a little bizarre that Jesus tells. So um, prior to Luke 14, 15, and the beginning of Luke 14, uh, which, by the way, Pastor Mike covered much of it last week, but just to refresh your memory, or if you missed last week, uh, beginning of Luke 14, Jesus is invited to a prominent Pharisee's house uh, for dinner on the Sabbath. So Jesus and his disciples go, and there's a bunch of religious leaders at this Pharisee's house on the Sabbath. And though Luke doesn't tell us, it's easy to kind of read between the lines and assume that this Pharisee is not inviting Jesus out of the goodness of his heart. But rather, he is inviting Jesus to his house on the Sabbath so that he and his friends can trap Jesus in something Jesus says or does. In fact, Luke kind of alludes to it at the beginning of Luke 14 because he says when Jesus shows up at the dinner party, he is being watched closely. You ever showed up somewhere and just kind of felt like people were watching you? I'm not talking about your spouse. Uh, early on when my wife, Shell and I were dating, we were about two months into dating, and I went to her family's Thanksgiving. And this was the first time I was meeting, you know, everyone besides her parents. And Shalana is the baby of six kids. So she has five older siblings. They were all married off. So there was five siblings, their spouses, the aunts and uncles. And I showed up to Thanksgiving. Oh, and by the way, did I mention that Shalana was a senior in high school and I was a junior in college? So I kind of get how Jesus felt when Luke says he was being watched closely. So Jesus shows up at this prominent Pharisee's house. This prominent Pharisee and all of his Jewish religious friends are there. And Luke writes that suddenly in front of Jesus is a man with abnormal swelling in his body. Which begs the question, where did this man come from? Now, it's possible that he just barged into the dinner party. I mean, that did happen in the Gospels. Occasionally, people would be so desperate to get to Jesus, they would just barge in. Um, but normally, the writer of the Gospel alludes to that. Luke doesn't allude to him barging in. Uh, what we can kind of assume from the text is that the, the religious leaders have set Jesus up. 
And they invite this man or they let this man know that Jesus is at their house. So this man shows up and it's the Sabbath. The religious leaders believe healing someone on the Sabbath is work. And so they want to see what Jesus does. So they set this up. They bring this man. They use his suffering as a trap and they bring him in front of Jesus and they sit back to watch what Jesus does. And Jesus knows all this and he looks at them and he says, hey, is is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? In other words, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? Of course, he knows they don't think it is and they're silent. This awkward tension. They don't say anything. Because it's one thing to say something about an issue. It's another thing when the person is standing right in front of you. So they don't say anything. So Jesus reaches out and he heals the man. And I don't know about you, but if I'm there and I see Jesus do a miracle, someone is in pain and suddenly they are free of their pain, I'm celebrating, right? Like, I'm like, yes, awesome Jesus, like, way to go, this is great. But it's this awkward silence, you can, you can kind of feel the tension in the room. In fact, Jesus heals the man, and then he, he, he tells him he can leave. It's like, this is an awkward dinner party. You're not going to stay. You're free to go. And the man's like, sweet, I'm out of here. And there's this awkward tension. And so Jesus says to the religious leaders, he's like, hey, if you had a child or an ox that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't you pull them out? Like, wouldn't you do the work of pulling them out? In other words, isn't helping others, isn't saving life, Improving life more important than your religious rules. And Luke writes that they're silent. Which is, again, is interesting because there's a progression that is happening in Luke. It's easy to miss. This is the third time that Luke records that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. The first time in Luke 6, 11, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And Luke writes, the religious leaders were furious. They are angry. They are mad. They are furious at Jesus. Then Jesus heals for a second time on the Sabbath in Luke 13, 17, and Luke writes that the religious leaders were humiliated. They go from furious to humiliation, and now in Luke 14, Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders have nothing to say. They're silent. There's this progression. Perhaps Jesus is slowly beginning to win some of the religious leaders over, or perhaps they've just come to the conclusion that there's nothing they can do to stop Jesus. We're not sure, but for whatever reason, the religious leaders are silent, and yet there's this awkward tension. There's this tension in the room. And Jesus continues poking at the religious leaders, and he says to them, hey, when you show up at a dinner party, don't pick the best seats. Uh, in Jesus' day, the, the host would sit in the middle of the table, and the most important people would sit next to the host, and then it would go down to the least important. And Jesus says, when you come in, don't fight for the best seats. Be humble. And Pastor Mike unpacked that last week. If you missed that message, you can check that out online. Uh, but then Jesus continues, and he says to the host of the party, he says, hey, instead of inviting your religious buddies to these dinner parties, why not invite the poor and the lame and beggars, the blind, who cannot return the favor? Now, if you were at that dinner, pay, dinner party as a good Jew, immediately you would go, oh, come on, Jesus, you did not just say that. Because no good Jewish religious person would ever invite any of those people to a dinner party. Never. Because everyone believed that people that were blind, that were lame, that were poor, they were getting what they deserved. They were being punished by God for things they or their parents did. So there was no need to show mercy to those people. Furthermore, If you invited someone like that into your home, an unclean person into your home, you would immediately become unclean yourself. And in those small, tight-knit communities, word would spread, and suddenly you would have the condemnation of the entire religious community against you. So no good religious Jew would ever do something like that, but Jesus is poking at 
these religious leaders. You can feel the tension. And I think probably to break the tension in the room, one of the more well-meaning people at the party, one of the peacemakers, because we all have those, right, at family get-togethers, the peacemaker that tries to change the subject when things get awkward. Any of you the peacemakers in the family at those get-togethers? A few of you. Any of you the ones that make family get-togethers awkward? Make the peacemakers uncomfortable? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So this peacemaker poses, uh, 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 tries to change the subject. And this is where we pick up our text today. And it's important that we have all that context to understand what is about to happen. So Luke 14, starting in verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. And the story just ends. Talk about an awkward dinner party. So our peacemaker, feeling the tension in the room, tries to change the subject. And he says, hey, uh, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Like, we can all agree on that Jewish blessing. Woo, is it getting hot in here? But here's the problem. That Jewish blessing pointed to an idea that someday in heaven, the righteous, the good religious Jews would eat at a great feast, a great banquet, and all of the unclean sinners would be excluded. So Jesus says, huh, let's talk about that feast that all of you proud religious leaders think that you're going to be at while everyone else, all the unclean people will be excluded. And he immediately launches into this story about a great feast, great party, many guests invited. And as was customary in those days, the host would send out an RSVP, much like a wedding today, to get a head count for how much food that he would need to prepare or his servants would prepare. And one thing that we need to understand is that in Jesus' day, these banquets, these feasts, these parties were the entertainment, the high point, the focus of life. Remember, this is pre-television, this is pre-smartphone, this is pre-many of the hobbies that keep us at home when we're invited to things. And so even if you were an extrovert, you would want to go to this party. You might leave early, but you would want to go. So this host invites people and everyone RSVPs, yes, of course, I'll be there, wouldn't miss it. Have you ever been invited to something and you're like, I have got to go, I've got to be at that thing. Like, I don't care what it takes, I I want to be there. Uh, A number of years ago, the Denver Broncos had a quarterback uh, who was not the best quarterback, but he was very interesting to watch. His name was Tim Tebow. Any of the Bronco, any of the football fans remember Tim Tebow? I'm a lifelong Broncos fan growing up in Denver, Colorado, and uh, I loved watching Tim Tebow. Again, not because he was the greatest quarterback. He was not. But boy, did he play hard. 
And he wanted it so bad. And he was, he was a Christ follower, very outspoken about his faith. And the season that he started for the Broncos, for three and a half quarters, he and the offense would look horrible. Like, absolutely atrocious, painful to watch. And then the last, like, seven minutes of the game, he would just will the Broncos to victory. We had a great defense, which helped. And he would find a way to win. It was just so fascinating watching him. So I loved watching Tebow play. The Broncos made it to the playoffs. Should have never made it to the playoffs. Actually won a playoff game that year. It was, it was crazy. Well, that year, after that, after that season, I found out that Tim Tebow's mom was going to be speaking at a Christian event in Milwaukee. And I was like, I want to meet Tim Tebow's mom. Like, I don't want to meet Tim Tebow, but his mom's like the second best thing, right? So, uh, I was like, I was like, Shalana, there's this event. Someone gave us two tickets to go to this event. I'm like, we are going. Also, can we go? And uh, and we did go, and so here's a picture of, uh, of us hanging out with uh, Mrs. T, uh, Pam, Pam Tebow, our friend. No, uh, uh, we met her once, but uh, Pam Tebow. It was awesome. Like I was, did not want to miss that opportunity. It's important to understand that banquets in Jesus' day were like that. They would not be missed. Nowadays, you get invited to an event, you kind of weigh what else we got going on. Do we really want to go? How long do we got to be there? Like, but. Parties back then were the social event. So everyone's invited. They all RSVP, yes. But the story takes a strange twist. When the time for the banquet comes, servants are sent out to tell everyone the food is ready, which again was customary back then. You'd send out servants to everyone in your little village, and they'd tell everyone, all right, food's ready. Come on over, right? Again, we can't, this is pre-texting. This is pre-email. They send out servants to let everyone know the food's ready. And the guests start coming up with really, really bad head-scratching excuses why they're not going to show. Have you ever been given a horrible excuse by someone that was so bad that you were like, come on, can't you just give me the courtesy of like a better excuse? I had a student once tell me they weren't sure if they were going to make it to youth group because they were, quote, waiting to see if a better opportunity came up. I was like, that's a little too honest. Like we, we talk about honesty in youth group, but there's a line. Remember, this is a party for which they have RSVP'd that they are coming. And then suddenly, they can't come. And intentionally, Jesus gives these characters in his story horrible head-scratching excuses. The first one says, I bought land, and I got to go check on it. Where is the land going? Like, you can't check on it tomorrow? Like, like is the land disappearing? Like, was this a shrinking island? Like, why are we checking on the land? Horrible excuse. The second one says, hey, I bought a bunch of oxen, and uh, I got to go check them out right now. And again, uh, first of all, oxen were extremely expensive. You would not buy oxen without first checking them out. Secondly, again, where are the oxen going? You can't check them out the next day. It's a horrible head-scratching excuse. And the third person says, I just got married. And? Is she not going to let you out of the house anymore? Like, what's going on? It's another terrible head-scratching excuse. Three horrible excuses. The food is waiting. So Jesus says the host of the party is angry and he commands his servants to go invite everyone. All those unclean sinners, the lame, the blind, fill up the party. And they do. And they say there's still more room. And he says, go out to the streets and alleyways. Go outside the city. Invite people until this party is full. And there's no room for the people that were originally invited. End of story. So why does Jesus tell this story in that moment? Well, he's making a statement, and it's not so subtle, to the religious leaders in that room. 
And he's saying to them, there is a kingdom that is present right here, right now. There is a party. There's a feast going on right here, right now. The kingdom of God is here. And you're missing it. And all the people that you look down on are accepting the invitation. And if you're not careful, you're going to completely miss out on what God is doing right here, right now. Fascinating story. And in our time left, I, I want to bring this home to 2,000 years later, right? 2023, how does this apply to our lives today? Because none of us are Jewish Pharisees in the room that I know of. Like, how do we make this applicable to right here, right now? And I have two thoughts for you. Number one, the kingdom of God can be missed. What does that mean? The kingdom of God can be missed. Jesus spent much of his time on earth trying to convey an important reality. The kingdom of God, while it is a someday, it is also now. The kingdom of God is available to us here and now. Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you. What is the kingdom of God here and now? The joy of God. The hope of God, the peace of God, the very presence of God is available to us right here, right now, but can easily be missed. And quite often, I think we do miss it. See, it's easy to listen to a story like this one and to go, wow, those people with their lame excuses, like that is awful. But friends, we're the guests that RSVP'd for the party. And didn't show up. Like we're the ones, followers of Jesus in the room, you are the ones who have been told that the kingdom of God is here and now. That the same presence, that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in you. That you are now a temple for the Holy Spirit. That God's presence lives in you. That his hope, that his peace, that his joy is available to you 24-7, that as you go about your day, you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. The kingdom of God is here and now, and you have an opportunity to embrace it and allow it to transform your life. But how often do we as followers of Jesus miss out on the kingdom of God at work in us because we're distracted by other things? So here's a challenging question. What are the things in your life that are holding you back from experiencing the fullness of the kingdom of God at work in you right now? It's so easy to get distracted and busy with other things and wake up one day as a follower of Jesus and go, you know, I, I, I know that they say that the fullness of God is available to me, that God's hope, that his joy, that his peace is present in my life, but it seems so far away. Perhaps a little more money, maybe a new hobby, maybe a new relationship will give me the peace and joy that I'm looking for. Or for some of us that have grown up in church, maybe the scariest option of all is that we, we wake up and, and we convince ourselves one day that what we're experiencing is the fullness of the kingdom of God. Going to church, trying to be a good person, that's all there is to this being a Christian thing. And much like the religious leaders, we have religion, but we've lost the power of the gospel, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And we're going through the motions and we're convinced ourselves, this is it. This is all it means to be a Christian when there's so much more 
to following Jesus. But we're missing it. So what would it look like this week to accept the invitation to not miss out on what God wants to do in our life? To wake up each day with the knowledge that God is at work in us, that his spirit dwells in us, and that his peace, his joy, his hope, his patience, his kindness is available to us. For some of us, it may be as simple as waking up each day and reminding ourselves that we have a choice. We can, we can become distracted and miss it. Or we can focus in and live in the fullness of Christ in us. For others of us that are like, I don't even, that just, that's over my head. I don't even know where to start. Maybe it, it, it means simplifying it and just seeking out a spiritual mentor or a pastor or, or a friend that can help guide us into some spiritual practices that can bring the kingdom to life within us. So number one, the kingdom of God can be missed. Secondly, all are invited. Jesus makes the point repeatedly in the Gospels that those that we think least deserving of the kingdom of God are in fact quite welcome. Those we think are farthest from the kingdom of God are not only invited, but God's heart is that we would be the ones who invite them and welcome them into the kingdom. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 18, and those of you that have grew up, grew up in church know what I'm about, know, know what I'm about to say. Matthew 18 is, is a story where God says that someone leaves 99 sheep and he goes after the one. But, you know what, church? More often than not, what I do, and I think what many of us do, we wake up and we go, eh, I'm pretty good with the 99. I don't want to chase after the one today. I think I'll hang out with the 99. You know, the one that got away, they kind of deserve what's coming to them. They made their choices. Now they got to live with it. They're kind of prickly. They're kind of hard to talk to. I think I'm just going to hang out with the 99. But God's heart is that we as his followers would seek out the one that got away, the one that is far from the kingdom of God, and we would pursue them. In fact, it's interesting Jesus, uh, in his story, says that the, the master tells his servants that he wants them to go out and compel people to come to the party, which is interesting language. Like, if you have to force someone to go to your party, you might need to rethink your party. Jesus says that the servants are to compel people to come to the party. Like, why are the servants compelling people to come to the party? Well, when we read the context of the story, the servants are going out and they are inviting people that are never invited to parties. Blind, lame, poor, beggars. These people are not invited to parties. And so there's going to be hesitancy on their part. They're going to need to be compelled. They are going to need to be urged to come to the party because they're going to go, no, 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 I'm not not welcome at parties. If I show up, it's going to be awkward. I'm not going to know how to act. People are going to judge me. People are going to look down on me. People are going to go, what is that person doing at the party? They would need to compel people Because people would be hesitant to show up. In fact, Jesus says they are to go out to the country roads. And and, and that doesn't make a lot of sense to us in our culture today. Because typically the wealthy live outside cities today. But it was quite the opposite in Jesus' culture. If you were wealthy, you would live at the center of your village. The center of your city. And the further you got out from the city, the poorer you were. 
So when Jesus says that they are to go out to the lanes and alleyways and go outside the city, what he is suggesting is they are to compel people that were so poor and so disgraced that they were not even allowed to live in the city. They were to go out and get them and bring them to the party. But again, they need to be compelled because they would go, whoa, 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 I don't go to parties. I'm not welcome at parties. Some of us have an opportunity as we go about our lives to invite people, to compel people, to experience the fullness of the kingdom of God, but they're, they're going to be resistant because of previous experiences with churches or previous experiences with Christians or preconceived ideas. They're going to be hesitant. And it's going to take a, a passionate, loving approach to let them know that they are welcome. And here's the beauty. Our job is not to transform people. The Holy Spirit transforms people. Our job is to invite them and the Holy Spirit transforms them. But it's important to remember that transformation starts with invitation. See, here's what we want, church. We want people to be transformed and then we'll invite them. Clean yourself up, take a shower, and then you can come to the party. That's not how the story goes. Jesus says that the master told them, invite the smelly, stinky beggars and get them here now. Don't clean them up. Don't, make, don't tell them they got to recite the Jewish codes or prove that they know the Old Testament. Just get them here. Our job is not to transform people. Our job is to invite people into the kingdom of God and allow the Holy Spirit to transform them. But the process that God uses is invitation, then transformation. So what would it look like this week to be intentional, to find opportunities, to compel people into the kingdom of God, to tell them there is something that is missing in their lives, that there is joy, there is peace, right? We are living in a day and age where when you, when you see two people, there is a very, very high chance that one of them is anxious and depressed, we're living in a day and age where so many people are desperate for hope, for meaning, for goodness. And we have the answer, and it's not, it's not about yelling at them. It's about passionately telling them that there is something better. There's something better that we want to invite them to. Perhaps for some of us, in fact, in here today, as we sit here, we're like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm welcome at the party. I don't, I don't feel like I'm good enough. I've, I've made mistakes in the past. I've done things. And maybe the beauty of our story today is, is as a simple reminder to those of us that are watching online or those of us in the room that God's love and mercies are new every morning. That he pursues you. That he is a God that loves you no matter what you've done. And his invitation is to come and allow him to work in your life. Recently, I was reading a uh, book. I was introduced to a woman named Candace Parker. Candace Parker, for years, worked on the cancer floor of a hospital in Michigan. And as I was reading her story, I thought, this is a beautiful example of someone who understands the kingdom of God at work in her and then shares the goodness and the love and the hope of Jesus with others as she goes about her life. Candace Parker was known for her deep care for patients and their families on the floor of her hospital. She was often the first to console families of loved ones going through treatment. She would often show up in the waiting room with bagels and coffee. She was also known for taking the time to stop in and visit with each patient, and uh, she wouldn't leave until she'd made the patient at least chuckle, if not laugh. 
In fact, it was known on that floor, if you heard a patient laughing in the room, Candace Parker was probably in the room telling one of her cat stories. One time, a patient collapsed in an elevator, and it was Candace Parker who ran to the patient, cared for her, and got her to the ER. The patient would later say that in that moment, Candace Parker was her savior. What makes Candace Parker's story all that more extraordinary is Candace Parker works in housekeeping at the hospital. She's a custodian. But if you were to ask Candace Parker her job, I would think that she would tell you that while she may be in charge of bedding and cleaning, that her job, like what she does each day is share the goodness and the hope and the love of Jesus with the people that he brings her way. So what would it look like as we go about this week to be aware of the goodness of God, the the kingdom of God at work within us, and to see the opportunities to invite others into that kingdom. The worship team is going to sing one last song for us, and I want to encourage you to take some time and reflect on what God might be inviting you to do this week as we sing this song. as you go, may you go in the reality of the kingdom of God at work in you, and may you share that reality with others. Amen? Amen. Have a great Sunday.